A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to Almost Famous, the podcast about fame with me, Barnaby Slater. Thanks so much for tuning in. If you haven't already, please do subscribe or follow the podcast and leave us a rating and comment in Apple Podcasts if that's where you're listening. Also, do give us a follow on Instagram at Almost Famous the Podcast and on Twitter at Pod Almost Famous. In Series 5 of the show, I'm bringing you daily episodes called 15 Minutes of Fame, where I read out some of the most honest, controversial and often downright funny stories that celebrities have ever told. In today's episode, Paul Burrell, the former butler to Diana, Princess of Wales, describes the moment he first found out that she had been in a car accident in Paris and explains exactly what happened over the following 24 hours. Rapturous applause erupted around me as Beauty and the Beast took their bows on stage to a standing ovation at London's Dominion Theatre. It was the night of 30th of August 1997, my final chance for relaxation, and I had taken in a musical with my family before the boss returned from Paris the following day. She was spending her last night of an impromptu summer holiday with Dodie in the imperial suite of the Ritz Hotel. Back at the old barracks, Maria, my brother Graham, his wife Jane and I sat in the lounge, clasping mugs of coffee, reliving the highlights of one of the princess's favourite musicals. I was the first to retire to bed, ready to return to 7am starts at Kensington Palace, looking forward to seeing the princess for the first time since 15th of August and catching up on all her gossip. She had plenty to tell me. She had made that clear on our last telephone conversation. There was also a lot to be planned before an autumn of more landmine missions. Shortly after midnight, the telephone rang. It was Lucia Fletcher de Lima, and she was frantic. She had been at home in Washington when Mel French, chief of protocol for President Clinton at the White House, had rung to inform her about a car accident involving the princess. She had seen reports on CNN. Lucia did not yet have the new number for the princess's mobile. I knew that the princess never went anywhere without it, so I rang it, not even considering that she wouldn't answer. She always answered. It rang, then clicked on to the automated answering service. Maria made more coffee. I rang again, and rang. We sat around the kitchen table. I rang and rang and rang. Over the years, I'd repeatedly told the boss that if she was ever in trouble, she should get to a public restroom, lock herself in a cubicle and ring me. I will always come and get you, no matter where you are, I told her. Now she was in trouble, her phone was ringing out, and I felt helpless. I left the old barracks and ran across the green, up the road alongside the palace and into the office. Comptroller Michael Gibbons, personal assistant Jackie Allen, 
Driver Colin Tebbett and Secretaries Joe Greenstead and Jane Harris were there. Anxious faces everywhere. Someone made coffee. Michael, who was chain-smoking, manned the telephone on the desk in his private office, liaising with the Queen's private secretary at Balmoral, while Jackie and I sat outside in the general office. The first call came through at about 12.30am, and it confirmed that there had been a car accident in Paris. It didn't seem to have been serious. Within the hour, there was a second call. It was serious. Dodie was dead. The princess had suffered injuries, believed to be a broken arm and a fractured pelvis. I must get there, I thought. She'll need me. Jackie Allen started to book flights for me and driver Colin. He was chosen because, as a former Royal Protection Officer, he was well used to making unemotional decisions. All British Airways offices in London were closed, so the tickets had to be booked via its offices in New York. At four o'clock, Michael picked up the telephone again. Jackie went into the room. Minutes later, she emerged. She told me to take a seat and put an arm around me. Paul, you're going to have to be strong. I'm sorry to have to tell you this, but the princess has died. The princess had been pronounced dead an hour earlier, at 3am British time, 4am Paris time, after failing to survive emergency surgery. An invisible force knocked me back and winded me. If I had screamed, no sound would have come out. Complete emptiness. Raw pain. Jackie and I sat there and cried together. Then duty, engaged on some kind of autopilot, kicked out emotion. She needs me more than ever now, I thought. I rang Maria at the old barracks. Chuck, the princess has died. I'm going to Paris. I left her sobbing. The plane tickets were booked. I rushed home to pack a small overnight bag, then ran back to apartments eight and nine. I walked through the back door into a home that had been expecting her. Its silence hit me. Within 12 hours, her voice and giggling would have filled that void. Now, nothing. I walked around. Everything was how she had left it. I went to her desk, all neat and tidy, three miniature clocks ticking quietly, telling the same time, a dozen pencils in a beaker, the quink bottle to one side, the fountain pen in the inkstand, a memo sheet containing her word list of good vocabulary to use in correspondence. She had no qualms about being a bad speller. Then my eyes found what I had gone searching for, the rosary beads given to her by Mother Teresa, draped around a miniature marble statue of Jesus Christ, which stood next to two statuettes of Our Lady, one white, one ochre, beneath the lampshade. I picked up the rosary beads and slipped them into my pocket. I went into the dressing room and approached the table in front of the mirror where she got ready every morning, where the hairdressers styled her hair. There was the miniature clock, which told her whether she was late or not, half-used bottles of her favourite perfumes Faubourg 24 by Hermes and Heritage by Guerlain, her Pantene hairspray, a glass full of cotton buds, rows of lipstick in a plastic container. I took one lipstick and a powder compact off her dressing table and placed them inside a leather Gladstone bag with the gold D and coronet emblem especially made for her in the previous year. I did not take any clothes. I drew all the curtains, then took the princess's jewellery and placed it in the safe. I walked outside to join Colin Tebbett. There was one last thing I needed to do because I knew we couldn't leave these most private rooms the sitting room, bedroom, dressing room, unguarded as we flew to Paris. It was her world. It needed protecting. Colin and I went around shutting the doors and sealing them with thick parcel tape, adding a sticky label, which we then signed, denying access to the all and sundry I feared would come marching through within the next 24 hours. Colin and I drove to Heathrow for the first flight to Paris. 
Thank God he was there, with his knowledge of the protocol of VIP airport procedures. On the flight over, I hardly said a word. All I could hear was the princess's voice. The last conversation. The last time I had seen her. Her laughter. Her eagerness to come home and see William and Harry. How would I find her? How would I cope? Paris. She hadn't even wanted to go to Paris. Why? 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 As I flew across the English Channel, Lucia Fletcher de Lima was boarding the first available plane from Washington to London. Maria was waking our sons. Twelve-year-old Alexander had heard the news from the conversations on the landing and was sitting up in bed, saying nothing. Nine-year-old Nick had also heard. He was lying on his front, the pillow over his head, sobbing his little heart out. She was going to take me to the crystal factory. She was going to take me to the crystal factory. That Sunday, Maria never got dressed. The telephone rang constantly. I arrived in Paris to do what the princess would have expected. Britain's ashen-faced ambassador to France, Sir Michael Jay, and his wife, Sylvia, met us at the British Embassy. After coffee, I took Mrs Jay to one side. I'm worried that the princess will be dressed in an awful shroud, and she wouldn't like that, I said. Mrs Jay understood. Come with me, and we'll do something about it, she said. She took me to a rather grand suite of rooms, and opened a large Louis XIV-style wardrobe. If there's anything suitable in here, please take it, she said. It has to be black, and possibly three-quarter length with a high neckline, I explained. Mrs J rifled through her hangers, and pulled out a black woollen three-quarter length cocktail dress with a shawl collar. That's perfect, I said. And we slipped a pair of black shoes into the princess's Gladstone bag. The dress was placed in a hanging bag, and we set off on the short journey to the Petit Salpretier Hospital. As we arrived at the front entrance of the eight-storey hospital, Mrs J, who had seen the princess in the early hours of the morning, squeezed my hand. Be brave, she said. I remember the muggy heat and endless empty corridors as if the whole place had been evacuated. On the second floor, we walked out of the lift into a hive of activity. Doctors milling around in white overalls, nurses rushing around, policemen standing guard. We were ushered into a small office. In broken English, the chief surgeon expressed his sympathy and explained that nothing could be done to save the princess. Then we were led down yet another corridor with empty rooms at either side. At the end, two gendarmes stood to either side of a doorway. That's where the princess is, I thought. We passed the policeman, entered the next room on the right, and were introduced to a Roman Catholic priest, Father Clochard Bousset, and an Anglican priest, the Reverend Martin Draper. It had been Father Clochard Bousset who had administered the last rites, and he told me how he had anointed the princess with holy oil. My mind flashed back to all those times when the princess and I had gone down to the Carmelite Church in Kensington Church Street, lit candles and prayed together. In Paris, Colin and I drank coffee and waited with the priests. Chief nursing office Beatrice Humbert walked into the room wearing her white coat. It was about 11 o'clock. She told us we would be going in to see the princess shortly. Nurse Humbert, a small, tidy, exact lady, handled the situation as a consummate professional. I said, I really do not want this to turn into a peep show. I need to be informed of everyone who wants to enter the room where the princess is lying. She understood my anxieties about privacy and left the room to make sure the instructions were kept. Eventually, it was time to see the princess. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready get 30, ready get 20, 20, 20, ready get 20, 20, ready get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. I don't know how I stood up. Nurse Humbert held my hand tightly and Colin took my arm. We went out and passed the two gendarmes who bowed their heads. The door opened into dimness. Daylight sneaked through the slits of the almost closed Venetian blinds over the windows. One wall light provided the only illumination. A lady and a gentleman undertaker stood like statues in the corner. The silence was broken only by the whirring of a large fan. Then I saw her. The woman I had looked after for so long was lying on a bed with its headboard to the wall. A white cotton sheet was pulled up to her neck. Nurse Umber and Colin took my weight as I leaned into them, wanting to look away, needing to be by her side. The reality struck me in that room and I sobbed. I approached the side of the bed, wanting her to open her large blue eyes, wanting to see her smile, wanting her to be asleep. What I witnessed before me was indescribable, and it is not appropriate to explain further. But, regardless of how she looked, I wanted to hold her as I had so many times before. I wanted to make things better as I had so many times before. The draught of the fan came across me as it turned slowly. The princess's eyelashes moved, what I would have done for those eyes to open. I looked up and noticed that the only flowers in the room were two dozen roses from the former French president, Valérie Giscard d'Estaing and his wife. All that kept me strong in that room was the spiritual belief the boss had fostered in me. She had not been afraid of death since she had witnessed the passing of Adrian Ward Jackson in 1991, which had marked the beginning of her spiritual enlightenment, her fascination with the soul. When a person dies, its spirit hangs around to watch for a while, I heard her voice say, from long ago when my mum had died. That thought was my only comfort. I believed that her spirit was still in that room above her broken body, a soul waiting to begin its journey, as she would have put it. I wiped my eyes, 
gathered my strength and informed Nurse Umbert that I'd brought a black cocktail outfit and shoes to dress the princess with her lipstick and powder. Then I took Mother Teresa's ivory rosary beads out of my pocket and gave them to the nurse. Can you please place these in the princess's hand? I had another task to perform. I had to go to the Ritz Hotel and collect the princess's possessions from the Imperial Suite. Colin Tebbett, who was selflessly dealing with my grief and shock before his own, had organised transport. It was only a short drive through Paris, and we were soon at the reception. I asked if Mr Alfayed could be informed that I was there to collect the princess's belongings. Reception told me he was upstairs. We were left waiting in the main reception corridor for around 45 minutes. Eventually, we were informed by a messenger that Mr Alfayed was too busy, and the princess's belongings had already been dispatched to England via his country estate, Oxted. We headed back to the hospital, which was thronging with press. Colin and I sat in the room where we had met the priests. A telephone rang on a side table. I picked it up and recognised the voice of the Prince of Wales ringing from Balmoral. Are you all right, Paul? he said. Yes, Your Royal Highness, thank you. I remember thinking what an idiotic thing it was to say. I'd never felt so bad in my life. Paul, you will come back with us on the Queen's flight. We will be with you about six o'clock. Jane and Sarah, the princess's sisters, are coming with me, he said. Then he said something that left emotion strangling my goodbye. And William and Harry send their love, and the Queen wants me to extend her sympathy to you. I asked Nurse Umbert if I could see the princess again. I composed myself, this time knowing what to expect. Yet, when I walked in, a different sight confronted me, one that brought dignity and death, something else the princess would have said. She now wore the black dress and shoes, her hair had been beautifully blow-dried, and, in her hand, she held Mother Teresa's ivory rosary beads. That afternoon, Prince Charles arrived. He walked up to me, and the grief we both felt didn't need to be expressed. He stood opposite, touched my lapel, and said, Are you sure you're all right? I managed a nod. When Lady Jane Fellows and Lady Sarah McCorkerdale saw me, they ran up to me, flung their arms around me, and sobbed. In a way... One Windsor, two Spencers and a butler were a great comfort to each other. Shortly before six o'clock, I entered the room for the last time. The princess's body had been placed in a coffin. Much nonsense has been written on both sides of the Atlantic that she had told me she wanted to be buried in a casket with a window so that her face could be seen. She never said any such thing. Her body was placed inside a grey casket with a window, which was then placed inside a French oak coffin with a solid lid. I was told that the window was to meet French customs regulations. I boarded the Queen's flight BAE 146 with Prince Charles, Colin Tebbett, Lady Jane and Lady Sarah, all of us bringing the princess home. I took my seat on the plane next to Mark Bolland, the prince's aide, who was then his deputy private secretary, the man the princess called the fruit in the suit. The media Svengali, who in later years would be charged by St James's Palace with a deliberate proactive press strategy to make Camilla Parker Bowles acceptable as a partner of Prince Charles. I wondered what on earth he was doing on the plane, and hardly said a word to him. As tea was served in the cabin, I felt sick at the thought of the princess below us in the hold, reduced to precious cargo. The plane touched down at RAF Northolt, West London. We disembarked from that sombre flight, stepping down the metal stairs into a stiff, warm breeze that lifted everyone's hair. The evening sun was shining, we stood in a silent line on the edge of the airfield's apron. Almost in slow motion, eight airmen gently pulled the coffin out of the belly of the plane. 
the royal standard draping it. They walked in slow steps across the tarmac to the waiting hearse. Prince Charles headed north to be with William and Harry. Two sisters and a butler were charged with ensuring that the princess reached her next destination, first an undertaker's and then the Chapel Royal at St James's Palace. The three cars in our cortege pulled away from the airfield and out onto the A40 dual carriageway to take us into the centre of London. The most amazing sight brought me out of the blur and back into focus. As we drove, other cars braked and stopped. Every single motorist on both sides of the road, on one of the busiest routes into the capital, stopped, turned off their engines, climbed out and stood by their vehicles, heads bowed. People lined the footbridges and dropped flowers into our path. All I could think of was what the princess would have thought. They're not stopping for me. Oh no. She would have curled up with embarrassment. We arrived at an undertaker's in London, and the next person I saw was the princess's doctor, Dr Peter Wheeler, who comforted everyone. He took me to one side, concerned at what I had witnessed in Paris. If you need anything to help you sleep, I nodded. I wasn't the only one having to be professional in duty at the loss of a dear friend, and I did not envy Dr Wheeler the duty he had to perform. I have to attend an autopsy now, he said, and it is not going to be easy. Why does she need another autopsy? I asked, knowing she had already undergone one in Paris. The one performed in Paris was conducted on French soil, under French law. For our government's satisfaction, we have to do the same, he said, mentioning something else about forensic inspections and necessary procedures. An autopsy was held in 1997, and yet, by the end of 2003, no British inquest had been held. The princess's body rested overnight at the undertaker's. The next day, there was only one place for me to be, back at Kensington Palace as usual, butler to a household without a mistress. At eight o'clock on that Monday morning, my first duty was to remove the parcel tape from around the doors. I was now back to guard her world. I was the only person who remained in apartments eight and nine, save for Lily the maid, who tried to keep cleaning, but sat there, breaking down. Michael Gibbons came to see me, armed with a difficult task. Paul, I'd been asked by St James's Palace to collect all back door keys. Less than 24 hours after bringing the princess home, I was being asked by those unfeeling suits in the household to hand over the keys to my world, and they were getting our comptroller to do their dirty work. There was no way I was handing them over. I refused, and it wasn't challenged. The cold-hearted treatment of the princess's staff was evident later that day, when I learned the fate of dresser Angela Benjamin, whom the boss had admired for her fresh approach, casual manner and sense of humour. When she turned in for work, like the rest of us, she had found herself being escorted off the premises by policemen. She was told to gather her belongings and was even watched as she unloaded her laundry from the tumble dryer. Her own grief didn't seem to matter. She was back on the train to Devon by lunchtime, wondering what on earth she had done wrong. The answer is clear. She was a warm human being with genuine feelings in a robotic world run by a cold, unfeeling household which brings about banishment as easily as it commands loyalty. Hope you enjoyed that first-hand, heartfelt description of the 12 hours after what was undoubtedly one of the most famous and tragic moments in modern British history. What are your thoughts on Paul Burrell? To me, he's clearly a very eccentric man. He certainly hasn't been afraid to make a living from his role in the royal household, but despite my own cynical eye, I also think he's in the most part honest. You know, he clearly loved, in his words, the boss very much. Uh, he almost paints it as a love affair, although certainly from where I'm looking, a love affair that was very much 
one-sided. Let me know your thoughts uh, on Paul in the comments section or by posting to our social media, which is uh, at Almost Famous, the podcast on Instagram and Twitter at Pod Almost Famous. Also, please do press that subscribe button and rate the podcast on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening. And remember, there'll be a brand new episode of Almost Famous, 15 minutes of fame every weekday. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. 